This is The Dog and Bone. Welcome to The Dog and Bone, a series of podcasts brought to you by Propeller Group. I'm Martin Lote, curator of The Dog and Bone. In each episode, you'll listen in to a conversation between two senior people at the sharp end of business change and transformation, with their permission, of course. Our two guests will chat and question each other as equals, exploring industry topics and stories from their careers. Hopefully, they'll dig up some tasty morsels for us to chew on. In this episode, David Weldon, one of the giants of UK marketing, came in for a chat with industry advisor Bob Wooten. David is the CMO of the RBS Group of Banks and has held high-level marketing roles at Barclays and Vodafone. He's also president of the World Federation of Advertisers and he's known for his forthright views on the state of marketing. Bob is a former director of advertising and media at the brand owner industry body Isbar. He's now an industry commentator and runs his own consultancy, Deconstruction. He knows David well, and so he got the conversation started. David, what do you think are the big challenges facing CMOs today? I think there are some extraordinary challenges for marketeers today, but most of them make it a very exciting world to be in. Um, let me put the first one on under the bracket of how do you sort the wheat from the chaff? So how do you know which new digital platforms are worth listening to? How do you know uh, what agencies to use for which particular subject, given that you know most agencies I've come across, any question that starts with can you usually elicits the word yes. Um, which sure is we can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how do you kind of build a team when the world, uh, the world of workplace is changing so much? So I think they're a good, interesting bunch of challenges, but they're probably no different than they were 100 years ago, in truth. So just to alight on one thing that isn't necessarily the sexiest thing to start with, but when you're talking about team, assembling teams, capabilities, uh, developing those, fostering them, can you find the capabilities or, or is, especially in the digital space, is it a bit rock and roll and everyone's groping around for the answer? On capabilities, I mean, what intrigues me is there was a great piece of research that Google did about you know what made their people that had been really successful successful compared to what they'd thought in the first place. So they, of course, thought they were only going to hire engineers and people with brains of planets. And actually what all their research showed, this is about 18 months ago, is that the people who'd been most successful at Google were the ones with uh, collaborative skills, the ones with communication skills, the ones who knew how to work with other people and the ones that knew how to learn something new every day. Um, now, I don't think this is any different than marketing. And one of the problems... I do think is the deep specialism that we once had. So you and I, Bob, grew up in this world where, Mm -hmm. you know, if you were sitting in front of a client talking about media buying, you knew that they would know what you were talking about. I mean, today, I think that's harder to find, particularly given the complexity of media buying and media measurement. Um, So some skills are tough to find, and that's where you've got to get smart about outsourcing some of them um, under probably more direct management than agencies might have been used to. Right, right. And it is definitely more difficult for you to guy, you guys to cover the whole horizon. Um, I, I know that. But, of course, that leads to possible exposure and liability because in a world where, as you say, everybody's probably got a solution to whatever your question was, you've got to figure it. It's up to you, caveat emptor. Well, it is. And I think one of the problems, I'll name the company I was working for at the time, but not the agency. When I was at Vodafone and I said to an agency sitting in front of me, can you help us with our social media strategy? And they went, yes. 
And then I think if I shorthanded what they went away, I went, social media? What the hell social media? Yes. <laughs> so fuck, 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 fuck. So yeah. quite a bit of the company's money was burnt while people were learning on the job, which you just can't afford to do. Yeah. So, you know, demanding honesty of people is something I think is really important in today's world and making sure you can smell the faint whiff of bullshit um, when it's coming at you. I think some people jump, jump too quickly on the new shiny things without questioning them. Well, that, that takes us into something else you've mentioned, which I, I just scribbled down the word effectiveness of what you're doing. And clearly that's what we're all trying to do is create an effect, not just spend money. Yep. But how do you marshal yourself to maximise effect and, if you like, progressively sort that chaff from the wheat? Well, I mean, I think you know we always use that maxim of you know what gets measured gets done and therefore each exercise we set about doing in my function we look at you know what's the measurement of success going to be how are we going to know whether it's worked or not and that actually leads to quite a good debate around what measures matter and what ones don't and and you know the what you're touching on there bob is you know I, i've had a pop at some of the fake metrics that we've seen pop out of the likes of facebook and google to a slightly lesser extent but they're culpable as well there was a whole set of metrics you could rely on born um, in the tests of time and today's metrics are slightly less reliable. So you've got to find the ones that work for each project. So we're fairly rigorous about that. We've kind of zigzagged in and out of understanding as new news has appeared. And for example, the industry seized on online and more or less took it at face value for its first dozen years. Yep. And then suddenly we find out that the metrics might not be all that you'd hoped and that indeed some of these views aren't real, and indeed there are big safety issues and so on. Have you have you had your hands um, burnt personally by any safety safety issues, or, or only so far, fortunately, at second remove? Um, at second remove, mostly because one of the privileges of doing this WFA role is I can see things coming um, before they become publicly known. So we, we trod back in some of the areas that I thought were going to generate um, some problems, and actually the the interesting bit of that is, of course, these are problems if you go to the brand safety issue. You know, I think it was in March 2016 when Mikko Cotilla came to make a presentation to the um, WFA Council. We were in Singapore at the time and he showed us um, some live uh, jihadi websites with some content on them, which was absolutely shocking, uh, and then took yeah. us through in detail what was happening with ad fraud and the statistics around it. Um, and first time I came aware of it, we then um, set about, Stefan, the CEO, and I talking to Google and Facebook um, to differing degrees of success. But, you know, here we are uh, a few years later, and this is now a big deal, mm -hmm. um, and actually partly made a big deal by the very people that were suffering most from it, the media owners and the Times in the UK in particular, but that's happened globally. Indeed, indeed. This uh, Mikko Cortilla is a very interesting man. He, he is an ex-black hat hacker who has gone white hat. Uh, he sometimes even fears for his life. He so does, he does. He, he, um, he, he, he lives very remotely. He has extraordinary uh, arrangements around himself to protect his location via his IP and so on. He's a fascinating man, but he does understand uh, a, a lot of the very, very deep functionality and deep darkness. Yeah, he does. Uh, and actually made that clear. I mean, in fairly frightening terms, so frightening that I just told you we were meeting in Singapore. We were, in fact, in Kuala Lumpur. But don't tell anybody. <laughs>
Now, listen, we're going to jump around a bit, but I want to just ask you, because of your position as a C-suite marketer, I want to ask you a few questions about, about what are the pressures around you within the business? Yes, I mean, I think, you know, I have watched marketing in the UK in particular go through some odd phases of, you know, we're not being taken seriously enough. Um, and actually, I do remember saying, well, that's probably because we're not good enough at it. So I, I'm delighted to sit on our executive committee and it's taken me um, a while to kind of build my internal network. And I've done that by doing the job in the right way, being open about what I can do, clear about what I can't do and clear about what's uh, to be measured or not. So I've found this um, at RBS to be a fantastic task to have. Now, I'm not sure if I go back into my previous bank, because I've done two of them, that if you'd been sitting asking me the same set of questions, I'd have answered in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's something to do with I was, um, whilst I hope I've always led with my authenticity, not my authority, I didn't sit on the Exco at Barclays. And if you don't sit at the top of the house, maybe you don't get the attention you should get. I mean, on a slightly lighter but still very relevant um, note, we seem to be seeing quite a lot of CMOs are getting kicked upstairs to become chief customer officers at the moment. I think in a couple of financial institutions, one uh, Lloyd's a little bit in the past and one TSB recently, you've actually got the top marketing guy being the editor-in-chief. Uh, what do you think about these um, the new splurge of titles? Well, I mean, some of them, uh, up the magnificent end of titles, you've got um, Paddy Power's Chief Mischief Officer, which I think is a magnificent one. But then you've got the rather bizarre, you know, when the Coca-Cola company shifted out Marcos de Quinto and said, we don't need a chief marketing officer anymore. We're going to now have a chief growth officer. I did find myself scratching my head going, but isn't that what the primary job of marketing is, to mm. drive growth? Okay. Yeah. So I think there's a proliferation of titles uh, which may or may not be people doing the same thing. But, you know, what I, what I effectively do is the communications and marketing. You know, Keith Weed is the chief communications and marketing officer of Unilever, Antonio Lucio likewise. So there's some additions to marketing to make it clear what we do. But I, I'm not quite sure, you know, what a chief customer officer does day in, day out that the chief marketing officer wouldn't be responsible for anyway. Mm. So it might be um, sideways and upwards or something yeah. like that. Um, while we've got you here, it's too good an opportunity not just to talk a little bit about not too too much pure brand theory, but things about brands. Um, first of all, the very concept of brands is rather under threat in this digitally intermediated world where everything's about product and commodity. Do you still believe in the notion and essence and need for brands? I, I completely believe in the notion of brands. I mean, what I always make sure I do internally is to make sure everyone's on the same page using the same language. So I have two favorite definitions. One was Arun Sarin, um, second CEO of my period at Vodafone, um, who said a brand is what a brand does. Um, very clear, straightforward definition. And the other is Jeff Bezos, now the CEO of the third trillion dollar company in the world, Amazon, of course. And he says, brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. Now, in, in both those instances, you know, what you've got is the reality of you can't just do the fluffy stuff. You have to deliver a proper customer experience. And as I explained to my people, everything that we do helps build the reputation of the NatWest brand, whether we send out um, the appropriate text message when you go overdrawn or we do a beautiful 60-second cinema ad and everything in between forms the reputation. So a complete believer in brand, um, not least... 
because all of the research that people continue to do shows that people do not make rational decisions. Uh, we make emotional decisions. Mm. But I like the academic concept that we see these days of agnostic brands. Um, we don't necessarily set about believing in stuff. Um, what you do is deliver a great customer experience uh, without necessarily forcing your belief set on somebody else. But if you do that well enough, they're still going to love your brand. What about the pressures? I think there are two external pressures. One is the continuous increased short-term pressure, and the other, which is partly related uh, in overlap, is the ownership of brands, because you've got more companies who are now owning brands for the really quite short term, certainly not for the Unilever philanthropic century-long uh, period. Do you think those are shining bright or dark lights on well, I, I, do, I do think, you know, it's difficult to build a brand in a world which is solely focused on short-termitis. But what you're going to be able to do, especially in a job like the one I've got, is to point out that there are short-term things you can do, but that what you're really trying to do is to build for the long-term. Uh, and as the Americans would say, you have to be able to walk and chew gum. So you've got to reconcile the short with the long-term. I don't see that as a problem. I don't see that as a threat to brand building, but you do need to be able to clearly articulate it. Um, and, and actually, I think that's a challenge if you're not steeped in brand history and you don't believe in it because there are a lot of people saying, ah, brands aren't the same anymore. You know, now I, I, this is why I enjoyed watching the biggest spender of uh, TV advertising during the World Cup um, being Facebook mm. because Facebook trying to course correct and rebuild trust. Where do they turn? They turn to television. And actually what they also turn to is the core purpose of their brand, which was to connect people socially together in the first place. So uh, nice to see a new brand proving that brands still matter. Uh, we're moving around, but jumping around, it's still relevant. I wanted to talk to you. You actually mentioned earlier in, in, in your opening comments about agencies. Um, and I was going to ask you that kind of catch-all question of what do you think uh, clients should actually expect nowadays from their agencies, particularly what you might call the lead agencies, which historically at least, suggests creative and media agencies? Or indeed, is that outdated too? Um, well, I don't know. Let's go back to your days at Horner Collis. Were, were, were you working as a lead agency, Bob? Very much. Yeah, give me an example. Very please. much. Um, we would have an influence on lots of stuff that we did not directly produce. For example, all the collateral on Peugeot as well as the advertising, to, to name it one. Dealer livery. Yeah. And stuff like that, just to give one example. And, and how did you impact and influence that? Um, really, I think we, we, we started with the strategy. I think it, we made sure it was strategic and not just, you know, somebody's got to produce a flyer or a leaflet and fill in a box. Although there were days when people had to do that kind of work. We always tried to link it back into what are we trying to do with the master brand, the manufacturer, or the sub-brand, the model. And we always tried to do that. Of course, it sometimes led to very, very smooth progress and everything joined up and looked fantastic and amplified everything else around it. Other times it turned into a turf dispute with other companies that had their own P&Ls and indeed their own minds. Yeah. So I, mean, I think you know, today's task is exactly the same. The probable difference is that it's not an agency who leads anymore. It's the, it's the brand owner. So the strategy is owned. I always like to explain to people that we own the strategy internally and then we have partners who help us execute it. That concept of lead agency, certainly in our case, is long dead. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure, can't speak for everybody, whether that's true because, you know, we might talk about the team Vodafone construct in a second. But I do think agencies 
um, need nurturing, need proper remuneration, need support to do what they need to do. And it's nowhere near as easy as it was when we grew up in this wonderful business. It is interesting. I think that most of the noise about this lead agency concept seems to come from agencies. And obviously, they have a vested interest to retain a position you've just said is probably, at least in, in your mind, sometime past already. Dismissing that for a minute, how to get the best from your agency, whether they're lead or whether they're support or whatever they do, a few tools and tricks. Well, I think the, you know some of this is the mother's milk that everybody will know, which is, of course, great insight, great brief and clarity. But I also think you know, you've got to give visceral response um, to work when you see it and then considered response later. So what does this make you feel? What do you think at the moment? Um, but then to make sure you're structured and ordered about what you're asking for and what you're saying, because, you know, I always remember that notion, I bet you do, when you sat in a meeting room and there were eight clients and they all said they're eight bits and pieces, you end up having to listen to all eight of them. Um, they won't necessarily all be saying the same thing. So yeah. we're very rigorous around how do we give the feedback? How do we do it politely but firmly? And how do we say no? And actually, I'd like to think we've built good relationships with our agencies who are on the same journey that we're on of turning this bank round. It's, it's a funny refrain. I don't think it's changed at all over 20 or even 30 years. I think that still there is a great deal of disaffection with the quality of many briefs. I think they, they were very, very poor briefs once upon a time. And I have to say, from listening to people, either they're just very grumpy and they're trying to find an excuse, or they're saying that many, not all, but many briefs are still, as you say, uh, ambiguous because they're actually delivered by four different competing interests within the client organization. Yeah, but I think this is, you know, when I'm asked at my advancing age what the biggest problem in business is, I say it's the same when it's always been. It involves people. Yeah, indeed. So you mentioned um, your time uh, heading up the Vodafone um, uh, uh, what do you call it? It was like an agency within an agency. Well, it was network. team. No, at the time it was, you know, it wasn't a particular piece of rocket science, but it was team Vodafone. And if you remember, you know, we at Tempus had a very strong relationship with Vodafone, WPP, then acquired Tempus in what I think history will remember as the world's ever first hostile sale. Um, and as a consequence of that, you know, I could say to Martin, look, you know, I've got this relationship, we can reinvent the thing that nobody should have ever uninvented, which is the full service agency. And we called it Team Vodafone, and it worked very well for a while. Now, my observation, having been on both sides of the fence, is it was a mistake to break up the power that an agency had by unifying all elements of the marketing mix. Uh, and actually, what you've seen, meanwhile, is certainly most of the big holding companies in a headlong rush to try and reinvent that, whether it's through a village, um, so the Havas village where all disciplines come under one roof or whether it's through the team construct um, that WPP, I think, will still continue to drive. Or Publicis Power of One or yeah. something. What, yeah. what did happen, however, when the, the, the two pivots of creative and media were separated is it did also create a run on the pricing of both. Yeah. And so, you know, we people of our age can still hark back to a 15% gross margin. And now uh, it's... In media, it's it's a fraction. Indeed, most media is done almost below cost. Well, it is, and and one of the problems there. I mean, worth telling the quick anecdote of you know when we did a global media pitch in my Vodafone days, um, three agencies came in back to back, strategy, strategy, planning, 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 and we can optimize your media by twenty eight percent. Next one, strategy, strategy, planning and planning, and we can optimize your media by twenty nine percent. Next one, same again, but and we can optimize your media by forty four percent. 
Um, and when they'd all gone, Vittorio Colau said to me, hey, David, how many media agencies are there in the world? Maybe get a few more and it'll be free. <laughs> <laughs> and in a way, I, I do think, you know, media agencies and the clients that allowed them to do this are to blame for, you know, what's happened there because there shouldn't be pricing that's marginal and invisible. There should be transparent pricing that people understand. There should be a fair value exchange that people understand. And agencies and clients are culpable of this drive down. Uh, and then I think on the creative side of the house, it's always been difficult for agencies to put a price on inspiration and creativity and demonstrate, you know, how it helps build a business. It's never been difficult for management consultancy firms, firms to put a price on what they do. So is, there's a kind of odd paradox here. Mm. Uh, and actually, it's a little bit too late to be running around trying to you know, change history there. Yes, yes. I remember a long time ago when I was involved in the Havas Network and uh, we sold a leg of me as a UK guy to actually run the European operation. And at the same time, another French company, uh, which was called Cara, uh, was uh, really resurgent because it had a very particular way of doing business. You did. And uh, one of my tasks was to uh, consider a possible relationship. And my response to Havas after touring Europe and meeting with Cara was, that uh, Havas should use Cara for nothing. Yeah. And the volume benefit to Cara would be so propellant that Cara would make all the money it wanted in the world and Havas would make all the money in the world because it was still charging its clients, but it wasn't costing it anything. <laughs> um, didn't prove to be very popular because the, what I didn't realize was the two French factions were already at war with each other. All right. And therefore the idea of going <laughs> to bed, however good the business case, yeah. uh, meant that I was probably, you know, I just jumped on my own <laughs> suicide bomb. You're listening to the Dog and Bone podcast from Propeller Group. If you're enjoying it, please share the link with your network. Subscribe on iTunes or your normal podcast provider. And if you're feeling really inspired, please write a review to help us zoom up the charts. Now, back to the conversation. Going back to your comment just now about transparency and about basically knowing what it is you are and are not paying for. Of course, in the digital, the online, I should say, the online value chain, that's more than a Sabbath day's journey to unravel. Well, it is. I mean, you're probably familiar with a fantastic analysis and chart that the WFA produced, which in simplistic terms shows that, you know, $100 put in by a client at one end of a digital marketing machine spits out, if you're lucky, $28 worth of impact at the other. And in between those events are all sorts of people um, taking a bite of this considerable amount of money that's been invested with a real lack of transparency. But I think the good news is, you know, we're sitting in the year when there's much more demand from clients for transparency, much bigger understanding of this is also a two-way exercise, so clients need to pay fairly and mm -hmm. be just as transparent in, in exchange. I think, for me, I think that's the missing because, because I think that certainly in a procurement-dominated client culture, which has... It's, that's dominated. It's maybe not as dominant, I feel, today, but, but certainly for the last 15 years, it's most of those 15. And I think that one of the things, one of procurement's shortcomings is that it sees life as a ratchet. And a ratchet doesn't go backwards. It, the more you try and pull it backwards, the harder it digs in. So if you like, you, they've extracted all the value, and then they've extracted layer after layer of bullshit and promise and overpromise and all the rest of it, which has saddled all clients with a complicated muddle of delivery, including some good stuff in there. And the only way of unlocking this is to unlock the ratchet, not to let it spin out of control back to 15%, yep. but just give to take, if yes, you like. I agree with that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and and I also think you know there's a duty on a marketeer inside a company to manage procurement more closely. You know, I have found that when you partner correctly explain you know what you, what we're wanting of agencies how we measure them how we work together procurement can actually be a force for good not mm. not always the cliche thing and again i think you know martin sorrell's overly critical approach to procurement and blaming them for everything didn't really help the cause here let's move on to a few human people issues a bit, bit about people and management um how are you and how is your organization uh, tackling and promoting diversity in its various forms well, we're, we're very proud of all of the efforts we make around inclusion and diversity. And actually, you know, we're using a an interesting old marketing trick, which is sponsorship, um, using the England cricket team, in fact, to sponsor diversity through the thought cricket has no boundaries. And what we've been championing is, you know, the England cricket team, the men's team this is, is probably the most diverse sporting team we've got in terms of its racial mix. But if you then look at the you know, the power of the women's cricket team, winners of the World Cup last year, and how much women's cricket has grown. And you then look at the disabled cricket team and so on. So using sponsorship to champion diversity. But, you know, we've got a very powerful program around women in business. Um, if I look at the role I took when I arrived first time in my management career that I didn't have a single female direct report, so they were all male. And now if I look at my team, it's just as it should be, 50-50. So, you know, we take management action to fix things and we run really powerful employee-led networks to champion their causes internally as well. And actually, this is why, you know, we've won some great external recognition of what we're doing. I guess, you know, now you've got your plural existence and you're scanning the world of marketing. What's your view on what's happening to champion the cause of diversity? Well, I have to say, on a personal level, I'm quite torn about it. Because first of all, I, you know, I'm, I'm getting on and I come from a world, so if you like, my norms are not the norms of today. So I have to adjust them all the time in my thinking. And the second thing is that I think while it is obviously right that we move to a representative gender split, for example, you know, 50-50 or 51-49, whatever it is, of population, I think that uh, there is a danger about moving too quickly and the positive discrimination that that quick movement requires. And indeed, there, is, there are some glimpses of evidence already as some, some very senior positions in British industry have been filled very positively and proactively with a female leader. Some have been wonderful successes. Uh, look at Carolyn McCall at EasyJet and hopefully now at ITV, for example. Great. But others that, that are perhaps not, their tenure hasn't been as long or as successful. And I think, therefore, there'll be new questions about, OK, we did the right thing, but did we do the right thing in too much haste? So there's all these questions coming out. It's only time that's going to resolve this. Time is going to resolve the imbalance, and it's also going to resolve the, the imbalance created by excessive positive discrimination. Well, I mean, I, do, I, I think this raises an interesting societal issue we've got here, and I, and I really do see this through the lens of the bank's data. You know, when I look at our customer base, particularly the customers who are making progress in life, most of them have got the colour hair that you and I have got. Um, and for those of you who can't see us, you, you'll have guessed it's grey. I should um, also say that David and I, uh, it is in fact afternoon when we're recording this, but we have both dressed in full black tie uh, out, of, out of homage yeah, to, of to BBC Radio presenters. In, in yeah, <laughs> nod to tradition. But I do think, nod. you know, no, I think one of the things that's kind of depressing to see is when I look at most of the marketing chat and most of the focus... It's on a very small 
and portion of our target base, actually. There's not much focus on the graying population here. There's not much respect for age and expertise. In fact, you know, if you were wanting the diversity play, as you could talk about the ageism you yes. see in the industry. And I do think, I don't think it's unreasonable. That, you know, you and I have talked about this before, Bob. If you nip over the Atlantic, they, on the other hand, much more respectful of expertise and the pepper and salt nature of um, our hair at the advancing age. So I do think, you know, we need to be careful when we think about diversity inclusion, because I like to think of diversity of thought as well. I'm not a banker. I don't think like they do. Yeah. I'm not steeped yeah. in it. Um, but hopefully I add value to the bank through a different way of thinking. Uh, and I and I also think this is, the issue of age is going to be one that we'll have to reflect on carefully. I think when you and I were talking last time we met, we, we actually came across a new concept, which was ageism in media planning. Yeah. And, and if you like, that the, the, the typical agency response to a media brief will now be quite youthful in terms of its mix of social and online channels that may or may not reflect, for example, as you say, in banking, more than half the nation's wealth, for right or wrong, is actually uh, aged over 50, yeah. for example. Um, uh, and another thing, in, in my other life, as a musician, I spend a lot of time with other musicians, and many of them are very young. And quite often, over a couple of beers after a session, we might just, I, I might for sheer interest say what's your outlook on this and that and many of them actually mark my card and say ah yeah you come from the ad industry where everybody's young and modern and liberal and and, and metropolitan we're not all like that uh, it, you know a 22 year old drummer will, will actually mark my card and say we're not all like that we've actually got some you know, it, almost your your old school views which is quite interesting as soon as i move out of our metropolitan bubble i begin to come across different points of view that's fantastic to know, and, and I because I do think we do have this kind of bubble thinking. And as you said, the, I think it was the Newsworks research, wasn't it, that showed that the average media planner yes um, thought that nobody watched television anymore. I was delighted to hear this morning that the BBC is still clocking up ten million views for things like Bodyguard. There are some myths that we need to bust here, and, and we should have proper facts on the table when we do that. Yes, I I, I had one question as as we come towards the end um david um i've just finished reading tim bell's autobiography um right or wrong which i found fascinating okay it's a very particular opinion but one of the opinions that he holds forth about which is not one of his political opinions is simply he bemoans uh, the demise of what he calls leadership of great leadership and he cites obviously churchill and he would cite thatcher and he does but he bemoans the demise of leaders who really hold the torch up high and strut out in front and say, we're going this way. Do you have a view about this? Well, I mean, I, I, um, yes. I mean, for instance, I, when I worked at Sarches in the 80s, I was the one man that would wear a red tie on the, on the, <laughs> the day, so I'm no fan of Thatcher. But on the other hand, when, with the benefit of hindsight, the best of all management tools, you know, she was a conviction politician. She believed in what she believed in, for right or for wrong, mm. whether you liked it or not. Uh, and actually... I don't think we see a great deal of that today. Now, when I look at leadership in marketing, for instance, you know, you've got some um, columnists um, like the fabulous Mark Ritson who are very happy to take a point of view and be bullish. But you know, marketing is now full of um, carefully packaged sound bites, people saying all the same things. I don't see many people mm -hmm. championing and leading causes. The chief executive of BA was on um, BBC News, I think, yesterday morning, Sunday morning. Yeah, he was interviewed. And I think he was trying to tread this tightrope he clearly had to have he, he had lines to take 
He had his PR advisors behind the camera pointing and all the rest of it. But he was trying to, at the same time, say, we take this seriously. We take the fact that our customers' you know, uh, financial details have been breached very seriously. We know they're pissed off. We are extremely sorry, and we are doing this and that about it. So few people are even prepared to say something along the lines of, we take it seriously and we're sorry. Even that seems to be beyond the pale. Uh, I'm in the privileged position of working with Ross McEwen, fantastic human being, great CEO, and prep him though we might, you know, when he's sitting doing this, he just says what he thinks. And now, again, with the lines and with full thought, but it's his authenticity that's working when he does that. And and I wouldn't want to just say, no, don't say that, say this. I think that's yeah. not the way to do you it. You use the word conviction, politician, that Thatcher, right? That, that conviction equals authenticity for the conversation. So that brings us, talking of authenticity, to the bit where we have to bear our souls and talk about our biggest mistakes. So can I ask you what you think yours might have been? Um, there are so many, I don't know where to start. No, I, no I, there is one that's perhaps worth sharing because um, this you know, a real mistake on my part was when I was at the Coca-Cola company, somebody turned up to offer me a new job. They happened to be doing that at exactly the time my wife and I were talking about, oh, we really like to return to Europe because, you know, my wife is Spanish. We want our kids to be Europeans, still do, by the way. Um, and what that meant is instead of asking, you know, what's this job all about um, and, you know, what do you want of me, most of the questions I asked were about, you know, what would suit me. Um, so it would suit me at the time to spend a week a month in Atlanta because that's where my wife was going to be with our newly born son, now 21, um, and fly backwards and forwards. And the people that were hiring me, that was BBDO, said, yes, yes, you can do that. And they paid me whatever I asked, not quite, but you know, it was all, it was a very good offer, very good discussion. And on the second day in this job, I rang up my wife and said, I've made a horrendous mistake. BBDO do not need a president of Europe to do what <laughs> New York has asked me to do. Um, and actually what that meant was that 18 months later, when our unified Europe um, around the common enemy, that would be at the time BBD New York, of course, that ended in somebody passing me a letter and said, read this, it was my resignation, to which I remember going, no, don't give me that, fire me if you want to fire me. <laughs> um, but the lesson is, always ask what the job is really about, what success looks like and particularly ask what the nitty-gritty shit of the job is you're not telling me about. Um, because if I'd asked those two questions, I would never have taken that job, even though it suited me perfectly at the time, but that's the benefit of hindsight. And what about you, Bob? What, what was your great big mistake? I've, I've led a bloody boring life. I've racked my brains to try and come up with anything that's broadcast-worthy, and I can't get to anything. The biggest single mistake I can probably point to is that I stayed at my first agency for seven years, which is quite a long time. As it happens, it didn't cost me zip in terms of my career progression. So why, why did you stay for seven years? Because uh, I was learning every day. I was very happy. In fact, frankly, I was a pig in shit because I couldn't believe, uh, after not knowing what I wanted to do with my life, to suddenly fall into work that I really enjoyed with people whose company I really enjoyed and all the personal freedom that an advertising career gives you. Uh, I, I couldn't believe my luck. And is, big, that, is that really the biggest mistake you've made? I've really tried hard to come up with something more newsworthy. And I think the reason for it is that I probably haven't been ambitious enough because I don't think I've really ever stretched far enough to fall flat on my face. Right. And I think maybe that's a note to self, that actually in another life, without not being yourself, I could maybe have been a bit more ambitious and pushed it a bit harder. But again, 
smug as it may sound, I'm, I'm sitting at a position where I'm thinking, but you didn't end up in a bad place, mate, so don't beat yourself up. Most inspirational moment. I mean, I was so thrilled when I got my first job um, that it's difficult to not remember that. And the irony of that, um, this will show my age, is that I knew I'd got this job because I was away on, my hol- on a holiday when my sister steamed open the envelope because <laughs> she could see the words... <laughs> Such and such at the back. So, Sue, thank you so much for doing that. I didn't hold you. But that was great because I had, you know, laboured long and hard to try and get myself a job and I got a great one to start with. What do you find inspiring these days, Bob? I'm going to give you a really bad answer to this. Actually, it's what I don't find inspiring. So, I remember when I saw the Levi's Creek commercial. It's the black and white one where they go down, they go down the lake. Girls yep. go down the lake and there's a guy having a, a yep. wash in the lake with a soundtrack by a band called Stillskin. And I remember sitting, thinking, I was in a competitive agency at the time, and I'm looking at this commercial and saying, Jesus Christ, this is what we're up against. This is just, to my, I was almost on my knees watching a TV commercial. I haven't seen a TV commercial for a long time that draws me into the screen, makes me just go, just everything shut up. This is astonishing. There's a lot of noise this week about the Nike, new Nike commercial. I think it's pants. I think it's hokum. Yeah. It's beautifully shot, but I think it's ghastly. So unfortunately, I'm talking about a lack of inspiration here, based on, again, it's a rather old answer, but I, I, I desperately want a commercial to hit my screen and make me go, that's it, that's why I, I've been here. Yeah. No, I, when it comes to the commercial world, I mean, I am a sucker for the kind of John Lewis approach yeah. to the world, so I do like, um, and you'll love the musical reference, I'm sure, but I do like what they're doing with Bohemian Rhapsody. As a soundtrack, and I also like I because I appreciate what Craig Inglis will have had to do in the background to get his partners to buy into that and support it. I doubly like it, and then I like the target audience observations inside there because families with kids. But I also see online people going, "This is indulgent twaddle from a day gone by." Um, but you know, let's see, let's see what That's it drives that. in by way of success. Okay, David. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today and sharing some of your amazing wisdom with me and hearing some of my less wise <laughs> retorts. And the time has passed quickly, but I, I, hope, that, uh, I hope that we've uh, given our listeners uh, a few thoughts to chew on. Who Thank knows? you so much. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Bob. Great to talk to you as always. Thanks for joining us on The Dog and Bone. Please subscribe to the podcast. And if you have any questions or suggestions, do get in touch via our website, dogandbone.dog, or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog.